0: Horse of a Different Color by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1968, Chapter 25, The End of My Run. Hmm, It's the last chapter. Father, I give you thanks for letting us hear um, from both the Ephesians and um, from Hebrews tonight. So I thank you that as I'm pondering that in my mind and praying for the family, ask Lord that you would... Uh, grow the obedience of each uh, part of our family, children, uh, sons and daughters-in-law, grandchildren, that, uh, that we would live in the reality that through Christ Jesus, our conscience is made clean, our lives are um, made available for good work, and we can go out uh, to labor a confident Lord of your uh, completed work through Jesus Christ. So, Let us rejoice and be glad as we go through this uh, life and reading this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. With the date set, I began drawing the reins tighter into my hands as any horseman does when nearing the end of his run. I started by putting a little pressure on the slowest of my meat customers, asking them to turn in whatever livestock was necessary to square their accounts. Then, by shipping out a carload of fat heifers, one of mixed cattle and two of bacon hogs, I cut my pasture stock down to what I'd need for butchering until the end of the railroad contract. The check for the shipment came in on the 15th of November. Using all but $200 of my trading account, I paid off the last dime of my debt. I'd known since late October that I had enough accounts on my books and livestock in my pasture to get me entirely out of the hole and planned to have a celebration dinner for the miners and Simonses on the day I paid off my debt. Then, when Dr. DeMay made his discovery, and Edna wrote that she'd marry me, I thought it would be best to celebrate all my good fortune at one time. So I kept quiet, although I wanted to shout the news to everyone. As soon as I'd made my final payment to the receiver of the Cedar Bluffs Bank, I crossed the street to the telephone office and found Effie in a decidedly testy mood. Do you think you could find somebody to attend the switchboard this evening so you could get away early? I asked. She looked perplexed. Frowned, and told me, "Reckon I probably could, but I sure don't aim to. What's going on anyway? A shivery? Whatever it is, it can't amount to a tinker, or I'd have heard something about it over the wires. You couldn't have heard about this," I said, "because I'm the only one who knows about it." (laughs) Humph! She sniffed. Then I don't reckon it amounts to enough to lose sleep over. What is it? Nothing much, I said. I was planning to have a little dinner party over the Keystone Hotel for a half a dozen of my best friends and hoped you and Guy could be there. Effie got over her belligerency in a hurry, but asked, Why don't you wait till Sunday night, when I'll be closing the switchboard early anyways, and when everybody won't be wore out with a day's work? Why, in the name of common sense, do you want to have a party in the middle of the week? Because. I thought this would be a good day for celebrating, I said. Ten minutes ago, I paid off the last dime of my... (laughs) Before I could finish the sentence, Effie came off her chair like a charging grizzly. Both arms spread wide and wailing, God love you, boy! After she nearly smothered me, she held me at arm's length with one hand, wiped tears off her cheeks with the back of the other, and told me, I knew all the time you could do it, but I never in this wide world would have guessed you could do it this soon. It would have taken me forever if it hadn't been for the help that you and George Minor gave me, I said. Fiddle sticks, she scoffed. I didn't do nothing but put out a few line calls and take down some orders. And you've more and made up for that meat you fetched up here. Don't try to feed me that stuff, I told her. If you'd let me price leftovers away intended to, I'd never have gotten out of the hole. And if you hadn't given me the idea of selling shortening and sausage in buckets and pans, I'd been buried under tons of fat back months ago. Then I cupped a hand around the back of her neck, drew her to me, and kissed her full in the mouth. Effie didn't do any resisting until I planted a good solid smack. Then she pulled away and sputtered my land of Goshen. What would folks think if somebody was to happen past as see is carrying on like a pair of moonstruck sweethearts? As she backed away a step or two, she put both hands to her head and scolded, "'You've gone to rumple my hair up till it feels like a magpie's nest. My curling tongs are over to the house, and Guy won't be back from his mail route for another hour. Look here, bud, run over and fetch him for me, will you?' or I won't look fit to show my head at a hog-dog fight this evening, let alone a dinner party in the Keystone Hotel. They're in the top right drawer of the bedroom dresser, wrapped up in a piece of white tissue paper, and fetch along the tall chimbley off in the lamp in the kitchen. The ones on both these office lamps are too so short they leave the end of the tongs, touch the wick flame, and get all suited up. When I got back with the chimney and tongs Effie was talking to Mrs Lincoln on the phone saying she had to attend a dinner party at McCook that evening and asked if Lucy would come and tend the switchboard for her she cupped a hand over the mouthpiece turned her head and told me in a stage whisper even right there on the lamp table bud what time did you say the party was going to commence i hadn't said or thought about it but whispered back 7 o'clock and tiptoed out i'd like to include i'd have liked to include nick in the party but knew that going would be torture for him, so I stopped at home just long enough to tell him the good news and what I was planning for a celebration, then drove on to the miners. I found George on the sunny side of the granary, sorting out the best ears from a freshly harvested load of corn, braiding the husks together and hanging them up to dry for seed. How'd you make out with them for Carlo you Ship Saturday, he called as I climbed out of the Maxwell. The best I ever made out with any shipment in my life, I called back. George looked at me in a puzzled, unbelieving way and said, By Jiggers, I didn't think that stuff he shipped was so fancy. There must have been something going on in the livestock market that I ain't heard about. (laughs) As I walked toward him, I took from my pocket the receipt in full the bank receiver had given me, unfolded it and said, I doubt it, but here's what I got out of that shipment, then held the paper out to him. Still, with a puzzled expression, George glanced down at the receipt and looked up at me with his eyes shining. He held out a hand to shake, squeezed mine so hard it hurt, and told me, I never misdoubted you could do it, son, but I reckoned, times being as hard as what they are now, it would take you leastways four or five years. It would have taken me half a lifetime if it hadn't been for your advice and that, that help that Irene and Effie have given me, I told him. George picked up a couple of corn ears, looked down at them as he started braiding the husks together and said slowly, I ain't taking the thing away from the girls, but I don't recollect giving you no advice. Of late years, I've been kind of leery about passing it about. If it's good, the folks that take it generally always come to believe in the notion was theirs in the first place. But if it turns out to be wrong, they never forget where it came from. and it can stir up hard feelings. Of course, there's been times when I've sort of honed to stick my finger into somebody else's business. But George broke off quickly, looked up at me and asked, Now you proud you took the trail you did when the judgment was against you? I haven't anything to be proud about, I told him. I took that trail only because I thought it would be better business than taking bankruptcy. Then you can leave the proud end of it to me, he said, "But what you've done will be a comfort to you as long as you live. "'You know, son, them heifers I held back when I sold the herd have been doing awful good. It ain't too late in the fall to breed them for summer calves. What you aiming to get into when the railroad contract peters out on you? With the bank closed and all, there won't be enough shipping business in this valley to keep you out of mischief, and I don't reckon you'd want to stay in the butcher business the rest of your life.' "'No,' I said. "'I'll have to find me another horse of a different color to ride from now on.' And if you're willing, we might talk about it this evening. I'm going to have a little celebration over dinner a di- uh, little celebration dinner over at the Keystone Hotel at about seven o'clock, and I'd sure like it if you and Irene would come. We'd be there if we had to crawl on our hands and knees <laughs> He told me, and you and I'll talk about some more about them heifers. The way the market has been acting of late. I wouldn't have missed out me this time. This might be a pretty good time for a young man to start building a breeding stock herd so as the new crop of young bulls would be ready to sell in about three years. As he spoke, George hung up the hank of ears he'd just braided together, then reached for his jacket and said, If that dinner's going to commence at seven o'clock, I'd best make an early start on my chores. I ain't as surprised what I used to be a few years back. He walked to the Maxwell with me, and Irene came out onto the porch to wave as I drove out of the dooryard. Above the backfiring of the engine, I heard George call to her. Get your glad rags on, old well, girl. The boys having a celebration dinner over to McCook this evening, and we've got an invite. I drove straight to McCook, went to Doctor Demay's office, and was fortunate enough to find him without any patients there. When we talked for about my health recovery for a few minutes, I told him that I'd taken his advice all the way, and was going to be married in January. Then I went on to tell him I had, it had been because of George Minor's encouragement that I'd gone after the railroad meat contract, and that largely because of Effie Simmons' advice and help, I'd done so well with my farm trade that I'd been able to pay off the last dollar of the judgment against me that afternoon. I said that I wanted to celebrate with a little dinner that evening for the people who had been responsible for my good fortune and hoped that he and Mrs. DeMay would come. Dr. DeMay seemed as happy about my getting out of debt as he'd been at his discovery that my diabetes was incipient and said that he and his wife would be delighted to come to the dinner. I told him then that George and Effie knew about my having paid off the debt, but that I'd kept my discovery and my coming marriage a secret from them as a surprise for the dinner. When I asked if he'd spring the surprise, he said he'd handle the diabetes end of it, but that I'd have to do my own talking about getting married. I stopped at the hotel just long enough to tell the manager that I wanted a table for seven at seven o'clock with the finest steak dinner and trimmings his kitchen could turn out. Then I headed for the best clothing store in town. My only city clothes were secondhand ones I'd bought in Omaha when I went to see Mr. Donovan about the meat contract, but I'd need a complete new outfit for getting married, so it seemed to me that I might as well buy it in time to wear it to the dinner. I chose a blue serge outfit or suit because I thought it would be more appropriate than anything else for a wedding, but the only one in the store that fitted me in the shoulders was at least six inches too big around the middle. It took a tailor until seven o'clock to make the necessary alterations, and I'd been out of practice long enough that I had a little trouble. With a stiff collar and bow tie, so I was late in getting to the hotel. The dinner was a fine one, and by keeping Effie stirred up a bit at, on the latest beaver township gossip, I was able to avoid talking heifers with George. And then, as soon as we'd finished the dessert, I told the miners and Simonses that Dr. DeMay had a surprise for them. He began his story with my first visit to him in the summer of nineteen nineteen took it step by step through the more than two years I'd been his patient told of his of his exhaustion experience and explained why they proved that my malady was not true diabetes. Then he ended his talk by saying, I've told him there's no reason on earth that he can't live a long and normal life if he takes reasonably good care of his health, but to make assurances doubly sure, to make assurances doubly sure I've advised him to find a good wife to watch over him. After George had nearly broken my hand while congratulating me, and Effie had called upon God to love me as she wiped away the tears of happiness, I said that I'd been following my doctor's advice to the very best of my ability, that i told the whole story of Edna and me right through from the time she first became my girl until the telephone call in which we'd agreed on the 25th of January as our wedding date, and Kansas City is the place we'd begin our married life. Of course, I didn't say that Edna was unwilling to bring a family up, up a family in Cedar Bluffs, but spoke of her being raised in Boston, said I thought a move to western Kansas might be too big a change to make right away. Dr. and Mrs. DeMay congratulated me and said they thought we'd made a wise decision in choosing Kansas City. Guy and Irene made their congratulations, but said they thought I was making a mistake by not bringing my wife home to Cedar Bluffs. Effie wept wept until her nose was red, and her cheeks streaked, partly in happiness that I'd regained my health and was going to marry my boyhood sweetheart, and partly in disappointment that we weren't going to make our home in Cedar Bluffs. George was quiet and stood back uh, while the others were congratulating me. He laid a hand on my shoulder as we left the hotel and told me, I guess you know how glad I am for you, son, and it don't surprise me none that you aim to live in the city. But if you should come to change your mind, them heifers will be right there in the pasture for at least ways a couple of years. The day before Thanksgiving, the railroad job was finished, and the crews moved out of Beaver Valley. But I was paid the daily minimum order under my contract through the end of November, and my thousand-dollar forfeit deposit was returned. So that my farm customers would have plenty of time to do their own butchering for the winter, I asked Effie to put out line calls saying that I was going to be that I'd be going out of the meat business on the 10th of December. I didn't tell her not to spread the news about my personal life, but I don't think it would have made any much difference anyway. After she'd made the announcement on each line, she told the listeners I'd paid off the last of my the last time. <laughs> of my debts had fully regained my health and was leaving beaver valley in the middle of december to marry my childhood sweetheart then she urged everyone who owed me an account to bring in enough livestock to pay it off all the next week wagon after wagon rolled into my yard each bringing a hog a calf a cow or a steer by saturday december 10th the balance of my books was down to less than a hundred dollars and i shipped out four of the most widely mixed carloads of livestock ever to roll over the rebuilt St. Francis branch of the CB&Q. With Kitten, the only animal left on the place, our butchering business ended with that shipment. On Sunday, it was simply a matter of giving away what little meat remained in the refrigerator, visiting with friends who dropped in to say goodbye, and telling them that before the winter was over, I'd bring my wife out to get acquainted with the most beautiful valley and the friendliest people on earth. Monday and Tuesday, Nick and I scrubbed and paused till the place shone like a penny, Then on Wednesday, I had an auction, including my household furnishings. It brought in as much as my entire investment in the butchering business, although there was little from the slaughterhouse that could be sold. Thursday morning, I went to Oberlin to say goodbye to Mr. Fricky, John Bivens, and my other friends there, then stopped at Cedar Bluffs for a visit with Bones on my way home. In the afternoon, Nick set off for Omaha, driving the Maxwell and carrying a check for $1,500 in his pocket. That evening, I went up to see Effie, took her a little present, and told her she'd always been my second-best girl. Then I rode over to spend the night with the miners and turned Old Kitten out to graze her away her remaining days along the banks of Beaver Creek. The next morning, my 23rd birthday, George drove me to McCook, and with my roving days behind me, I swung aboard the Eastbound Express. I had a fair-sized roll in my pocket and a couple of thousand dollars in my account at the Farmer's National in Oberlin, It wasn't as much as I'd had when I first went into the livestock business, but I was sure it would be enough, for I believed I could make a living for a wife and a family wherever other men could. That's a great ending to the whole story, especially because of all the um, people that he had impacted and who had impacted him. It was a great way for him to say thanks to everybody and show his love for them. Okay, end of the uh, Ralph Woody series. Love you guys.